Uh, let's ask God to help us understand his word. True and living God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you have spoken in the prophets and you have now spoken to us in your Son, in the gospel of your Son. We thank you for making yourself known so that we can trust you, so that we can be directed by your good word, uh, so that we can grow in our knowledge of you. Uh, we pray that you would help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly now and we pray in your great mercy that through the work of your spirit we would receive this word as your word, the word of the true and living God, the word that gives life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're probably all familiar with the story of Beauty and the Beast. It plays on the idea that we're often unable to see the genuine goodness of someone because of their appearance. That we can be put off from getting to know what is really there because what we're looking at is so strange. And these verses, verses 14 to 18 in Hebrews, are a little like that. Not ugly, but strange. The language so unfamiliar to us. Oh, the fear of death. You heard that as it was being read. It's an idea we know, but the devil as a real figure with power over us. Talk of angels, children of Abraham, a high priest. That's not language we naturally get that resonates with our modern imaginations. And so for many of us, this section of Hebrews is a bit like overhearing a conversation in a foreign language. We may be able to work out what's being spoken of, that work out that it's important to those in the conversation. Or we might even sense that they're talking about something good, but because it doesn't make immediate sense to us, we tend to stop paying attention and move on. But not paying attention and moving on because the language is strange to us would be a really bad outcome. For this section of Hebrews tells us why Jesus became one of us, took on our flesh and blood, and that's important. Important not only because it gives us knowledge of Jesus, but because it tells us Jesus came to address our needs, our human condition. You see, here God tells us we don't need to fear death when we trust Jesus. Oh, and he tells us that in trusting Jesus, we can know we always have someone to whom we can turn for help. Help to deal with our guilt and shame. Help to live as people who have a real relationship with the true and living God. People who are children of God. And as we all die, and as we all from time to time know that fear, fear of death, and as we were all made to know the living God and nothing could be better than living as his child, and as guilt and shame are real and can poison our lives, and as we struggle to live the upright and loving lives we want to live, we need to hear what God is saying to us here in Hebrews. More, we need to know that Jesus Hebrew reveals to us, not just as an idea, but as our living saviour, in the words of Hebrews, as our eternal high priest. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. Now the author's continuing the big idea of chapter 2, that Jesus became one of us. As you heard, he has spoken of how Jesus 
is the one who fulfills what is spoken of man, humanity, in Psalm 8. Jesus, he said, is the true human, who is heir of all creation, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death. But he is not this for himself alone. The author has told us that it's God's will to bring many sons to glory, that Jesus will have a family of men and women made fit to live in God's presence forever, those sanctified by faith in Jesus. They are those the scripture can talk about as the children God has given Jesus, given me, says Jesus, because Jesus and his children share a common humanity. He's now enlarging on that big idea, on why the eternal son has, become, has taken on that common humanity, why he has come to share in our flesh and blood, become one of us. And he gives three reasons here in Hebrews 2.14 to 18. He tells us the son took on flesh and blood, firstly, to be the conqueror through death of the enemy of our race, the devil. Secondly, he took on our common humanity to be our liberator from the fear that enslaves us, the fear of death. And thirdly, he took on our common humanity to be the high priest we need always. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now in what sense does the devil have the power of death? Well, in this sense, if you listen to him, if you listen to his lies, you die. And there is no escaping from the death his lives, uh, there's no escaping for those who are subject to death because of his lies. Now Jesus said, remember, that the devil in John 8 is a murderer from the beginning and a liar. Jesus was speaking of Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. There the devil lied. God had said to Adam that they must not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And on the day that they ate of that fruit, they would surely die. But the devil had said to Eve, you will not surely die. No, no, you'll be like God. And even Adam believed the devil, the serpent. They ate and died. And so in scripture, the devil murdered our whole race through his lie by bringing us under the judgment of God for our sin. <coughs> now, none have been able to free themselves from the death believing the devil's lie has brought. He keeps all in death through the sin that comes from believing his lie and putting ourselves in God's place. And so each one of us has been born into the camp of a humanity that's rebelled against God. And we in turn rebel by disbelieving his word, disobeying his commands, giving his honour to our idols. And in turn we die. We live under the dominion of the devil's darkness. And the devil's not only a murderer. He is also, says scripture in Revelation 12, the accuser who parades our guilt, our falling short of God's standards, our deserving of death before God. The judgment of death for our sin is always being demanded, is always what we deserve and is actually what all experience. We cannot escape the sin that turning away from trusting and obeying God to trust the creature has brought. 
We can't escape the sin that loving ourselves in the place of God has brought. We cannot escape the death our sin justly brings. And so we are under the power of the one who has the power of death. But Jesus took on our flesh and blood to destroy the devil by his death. Now in what sense and how? Well, the verb translated destroy here can mean destroy or it can mean render ineffective or powerless. And we actually see that both are the outcome of Jesus' death. The devil has been rendered ineffective in the present by Jesus' death and will be ultimately destroyed in the lake of fire because of Jesus' death. But how? How does Jesus, through his death, destroy or make ineffective the devil? Well, the author's emphasis here is on the fact of Jesus' victory, not the how. But because of Jesus' death, the devil can no longer keep Jesus' people, those who repent and believe his gospel, in death. And the devil can no longer make any accusation against them, against those who trust Jesus. He can't make any accusation against them that will stick. You see, we die because of sin because of our rebelling against our Creator's rule. But Jesus, in his death, has endured the punishment, death, that our sin deserves. He dies our death in our place. He pays the price of our freedom, our ransom, in his own death. Where we trust Jesus, every one of us who trust Jesus, we no longer have a death for sin to die. We have died that death with Jesus on the cross. That's the gospel. In fact, we are given Jesus' life, the life the devil has no power over because it's the life of the one who perfectly obeyed God's commands. The devil's power over us is broken by Jesus' death. And when the devil lays an accusation against us, against those who by faith are in Christ, it will always be dismissed. Trusting Jesus in his death, the scripture says... We are justified, that is, we are reckoned righteous in the judgment because we have the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of the one who always did God's will. When we come before God's judgment seat, as it were, and God looks at us, he sees Christ's obedience, not our disobedience. So now when the devil brings an accusation against a believer, when he tries to stand before God and say, oh, that one, he's got no place here or she's no place here because of that lying or that failure to honour parents or that envying, when the devil brings that accusation, he is laughed out of heaven for bringing a baseless charge. And think of that. There may be many things your own, consciences accu- your own conscience accuses you of. You know how damnable the things you've done are. Cheating, say, on your spouse in thought or deed. Destructive anger to which you've given way, marring the lives of those around you. The self-serving lies that have eroded trust. That pride that won't listen. That determined self-protectiveness that will use or abuse any, deny them what is theirs to keep yourself safe from grief or harm or shame. You know those things that should drive you from the presence of the Holy God. 
But because God has graciously made his son the sacrifice for your sins, if you trust him, because in his gospel the son Jesus says that all who confess him Lord believe that his death is for their sins and that he lives now to forgive all who call out to him because in his gospel Jesus promises that all who trust him are forgiven and justified in his sight those sins of which you are conscious of will never be brought up in God's tribunal, never come between you and God, never drive you from God's presence. Rather, by Jesus' death, the accuser, as we saw in Revelation 12, is driven from God's presence, cast from heaven, rendered powerless. And Jesus, by his death, not only justifies all who believe and frees us from the hold of death, eternal death, he has also in that death exposed the devil's lies as lies. Jesus, saving his people by his death, shows that it is God's word that is true and sure. God's word, not the creature's word that rules. And where God saves his people by the devil doing the worst, orchestrating the judicial murder of the son, where all the devil's malice and lies only serve to demonstrate the power and wisdom of God in saving his people. The outcome of the devil's rebellion is clear and his end, the lake of fire, made sure and certain he will have no place in the new heaven and earth. The son, by his death, is the conqueror of the enemy of our race, the murderer and liar, and as the conqueror, he is also our liberator from the fear of death that enslaves us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For the ancients you were a slave of whatever you feared. And that's right, isn't it? For what you fear can control you, direct your actions, just as a slave is controlled and directed by his or her master. How is this slavery to death seen, experienced? Well, it can be seen acutely where under threat people will abandon what's right, acquiesce in evil to save their own lives. That's how totalitarian regimes, for example, can bend so many to their will to work with and for a regime they despise. Or, of course, the fear of death can be felt in our guts as we lie awake at night and feel the dread of a diagnosis of cancer. But the presence of the fear of death in our lives is much more extensive and enduring, giving an orientation to our lives which is often unacknowledged, but all the more powerful for that. You see, Look at our own society. Many don't want to face up to the reality of our ageing, the sense of life slipping through our hands that each day draws us closer to the dark abyss. Many don't want to acknowledge that. And that shows in all sorts of ways, doesn't it? The person who runs off after or, after or off with that younger man or woman abandoning all to fend off an awareness that life is slipping away from them. Or those who spend a fortune on cosmetic surgery or anti-aging medicines or hours in the gym not seeking fitness but to stave off death. Or those who live frenetically busy lives, whether of work or self-indulgence, 
so they just don't have time to think of their end. Or those who numb grief at constant loss and awareness of impending doom, their own impending doom in drink or drugs. The fear of death is real and its bondage is real. Even in a society that avoids talking of death, seeks to deny and exclude thoughts of mortality. It drives the behaviour, often all unconscious, all unseen, of many around us. But Jesus, says Scripture, by his death frees those who trust him from the fear of death. Because his death for sin spares us from judgment, because we are justified by faith in our crucified Lord, because all our sins are forgiven in him, we have, in Jesus' words, already passed from death to life in believing him, in believing that his words are the words of God. And so the death of our bodies, instead of being the doorway to fearful judgment and eternal death, becomes for the believer the passage from life to more life, to richer, fuller life. Life lived in the presence of God, life that will find its fulfilment in the resurrection where our bodies will be changed to be like Jesus' glorious body. That's why Paul, and actually every believer, can say that dying is gain and that to depart and be with Christ is better by far. It's why the book of Revelation says that those who die in Christ even if their lives have been cut short by a cruel persecution, are blessed. Jesus has said that where he is, there his followers will also be, and that nothing will separate us from his love, not even our own sin and not our deaths. Believers in Jesus no longer need fear death. And this is a glorious freedom that Jesus, our liberator, gives each one of us who trust him. It's freedom to be real about our lives and their fleetingness and not be driven by unacknowledged anxieties, by the darkness we seek to deny. It's freedom to persist in what is right in being the person you want to be, a follower of Jesus, committed to truth and love even at the cost of your life. It's freedom to use your time and resources to do good and not squander them on fleeting pleasures and experiences because you look to a heavenly reward and you know you don't have to get it all now because now is all you have, which is what the world believes. Oh, it's freedom to go into that doctor's surgery and not be overwhelmed by anxiety about what she might say or to be wheeled into that operating theatre and know that even if the worst happens, it will be well. It's the freedom in trial to be not consumed with yourself and your own fate and fears, but to love others. It's freedom to turn your back on all those mind-numbing and destructive ways you might employ to avoid the reality of your dying because you know Jesus is faithful. It's freedom in this world of death to lie down and sleep in peace. And so do you know this freedom? If you say you're a believer in Jesus, do you live by this freedom? Because this is a real freedom for all who trust Jesus. And that's the point of verse 16. 
For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. This taking on flesh to render the devil powerless and free death's captives from fear is for the children of Abraham, not angels. It's to Abraham and his seed, his offspring, that God has made promises. It's Abraham's children that he takes by the hand to save, just as he took Israel by the hand and led them out of slavery in Egypt after defeating their oppressor, Pharaoh. And the offspring of Abraham are not just his physical descendants. It's those sanctified by faith in Jesus, his family, all who trust Jesus, who respond to the promise of God in Jesus with faith, just as Abraham did. As Paul says in Romans and then in Galatians, Abraham is the father of all who believe, whether they're circumcised physical descendants of Abraham or not. It's those of faith who are sons, male or female, of Abraham. Abraham's offspring are all those who, like Abraham, have faith in God's promises, have faith in God through having faith in his son. Jesus' conquest of the devil, Jesus' liberation from the fear of death is for all who believe. And it's for believers in Jesus that Jesus has become the great high priest. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now the author actually introduces here the theme of the next five chapters. Jesus as our high priest, and something he'll return to briefly in 3 and 4 and then spend more time on in chapters 5 and 7. But we probably don't get excited about Jesus being a merciful and faithful high priest. I didn't notice a ripple of anticipation when I said that, right? But that's to be expected, isn't it? Because we're not familiar with high priests. But as we'll see now and in these coming chapters, the fact that Jesus is our high priest is exciting news. Uh, briefly, a high priest is a feature of Old Testament religion provided for in the Old Testament law for God's people. He was the person upon whose activity the people depended to continue being God's people. He dealt with their sin through sacrifice. It was a sacrifice he offered once a year on the Day of Atonement that removed the people's sin from God's presence so that God could live amongst them. And the high priest also interceded for the people, brought the people and their needs before God into his presence. Without the work of the high priest, Israel could not have been God's people and could not seek, on, seek and rely on his help. And so in saying Jesus is the high priest, God is saying that Jesus is that person for his people, those who trust him. He's the one who makes it possible for us to be God's people, living in God's presence with his spirit in us. He's the one who deals with the sin that would drive us from God, exclude us from his people. He's the one through whom we can seek and rely on God's help. And in introducing Jesus as our high priest in these two verses, the author stresses four things. So firstly, he stresses that Jesus is equipped for this role by being made like his brothers in every respect. Now this is saying a bit more than that he took on flesh and blood, shared in a common humanity. Now it, it's saying that 
he is in every respect become like those who are God's people, that is, in being under the law, in being called to live life trusting and obeying God. And it's this solidarity that qualifies him not just to be the high priest, but the merciful and faithful high priest. You see, the author, secondly, stresses his character, merciful and faithful. Merciful to us, faithful to God, but also now faithful to believers to keep the promises he has made. And we need a priest who will be faithful, one who will diligently do all that God calls him to do, serves us by being faithful to God. And we need a priest who will be merciful, who won't shun us or turn us away when we fail, who will be patient and compassionate, who will be present to help. And this priest is able to help. Thirdly, the author stresses the effectiveness of this priest in dealing with our sin. He, it says, is to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's saying that Jesus is the one who will, by the sacrifice he makes, both cover over the offensiveness of our sin before God, that's expiated, and in so doing, turn aside his just anger from us, propitiate God. That's the priest we need. Somebody who can, can take our sin away from God's presence so that God sees it no longer and someone who can reconcile us to God. Jesus, our high priest, is the one who can make that sacrifice, the one who can make the only effective sacrifice for our sin, the sacrifice of himself. And fourthly, the author stresses that he is a priest who is not only willing to help he is equipped by personal experience to be able to help when we are tested in our relationship with God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, the ESV reads as if it is the suffering that results from temptation that equips him to help those being tempted or tested. And the word that is translated here as tempted is also the word that in other places is translated as tested. But it's actually better to read the alternative that I have up there, to understand the suffering as the cause of the testing. For being tested by what or because of what he himself suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested or tempted. And the suffering that he is speaking of is the most extreme suffering. It is the suffering of death. Now, reading it this way, understanding that uh, Jesus is tested by what he suffered actually accords with the circumstances of the first hearers. They are being tested by suffering, tempted to draw back from following Jesus because of persecution. But Jesus' testing in suffering equips him to help us in all our trials, whether the temptations we face are like those Jesus faced or different, because the testing of suffering is universal. You see, what's the testing Jesus has experienced in suffering? Well, think, how does suffering test us? Well, doesn't suffering tempt us to doubt God's goodness? Doesn't it tempt us to question his promises to us? And in particular, if we're believers, doesn't it 
tempt us to question whether we've been forgiven, (laughs) whether God really does love us and that in our suffering he's treating us as a loving father, not as an angry judge. Oh, in suffering aren't we tempted to become angry or resentful or to be envious of those whose lives seem easier than ours, to even start to hate the happiness of those we think less deserving. When it's hard for us, aren't we tempted to abandon trusting and obeying God, to do what we think will work to end our suffering? These are the temptations, the temptations of those who suffer But aren't they actually the temptations we face in all our trials? Think about it. Examples. If we're poor and out of work, aren't we tempted to doubt God's goodness, to be envious of others who seem to have it so easy? If we're lonely, aren't we tempted to think that God is against us or to think that we could do a better job than God in looking after his children and to take matters into our own hands and not wait for him to provide, say, a believing partner for us or good friends? If we're in a difficult marriage, aren't we tempted to be angry at God for expecting from us something that's so hard, faithfulness to our wife or husband, tempted to pursue our own happiness by abandoning doing what God calls us to, love or respect, lifelong faithfulness? But because Jesus was tested in the suffering of death, He is able to help. Able to help because he understands our trial. And so you can come in prayer to him. Coming knowing that he knows what it's like to be tested by suffering. And so knows what you are undergoing. Knows what you're being tempted in. And knows what you need to endure. But more. Jesus is not just one who understands. He's one who can help because as our high priest, he's dealt effectively with our sin. And so coming to him, we can be assured that we are forgiven and that in our trials, we're not experiencing God's anger, but being disciplined as his beloved children for God's great goal for his children, righteousness and peace and sharing in his eternal kingdom. Oh, and as our high priest, he can help because he makes effective intercession with God. God hears our pleas for help and mercy. We know that in Christ. And he will answer them in love. And so he is the source of strength and of relief, the way of escape in trial. And notice, this is what Jesus is. He is our merciful and faithful priest. You see, verses 14 to 15 focused on the effect of Jesus' death, an event in the past. Yes, has continuing wonderful consequences for the present, but an event in the past. But here in these verses, the author shifts the focus on why the Son has become one of us to stress what Jesus is for us in the present and who he continues to be always. He is our merciful and faithful high priest now and forever. And that means that Jesus is always there, always able to deal with our guilt and shame. He's always able to apply the effect of his sacrifice to us. And we need to know that, don't we? Because we fail. Oh, we commit to following Jesus. 
We want to live a life of truth and love, but we feel anger with our spouse or succumb to self-interested lies. We do, by our own ignorance, do harm to those we should love even when we're trying to do good. And we feel the shame of that, a shame that could drive us away from our God, from our Father. But Jesus is our present high priest. He can always apply the effectiveness of his death to us. He is always able to forgive and to restore us to that intimacy which is every believer's birthright. And as our high priest, the one who continues as our high priest, he is always able and willing to help in need. He may have finished his work on the cross, he has, but that does not mean he has become distant from or indifferent to his people, uninvolved with them. Although he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, as Hebrews tells us, he has not withdrawn or retired from being present with and for his people. He remains our merciful and faithful high priest, always present to help, committed to help, able to help each one of his family, his brothers and sisters. Jesus, the conqueror of our deadly foe, Jesus, our liberator from the fear of death, Jesus, our present and merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus, the saviour we need, each one of us. It's true, isn't it? For we all die and cannot overcome death by ourselves. We all know that fear and cannot free ourselves. We all sin and cannot atone for our sins ourselves. We all face trial and testing, and we don't have the strength in ourselves alone to live faithful to God, to live that life of persevering love that we are all called to, and which, if we are followers of Jesus, we long to live. We need Jesus. And so if you have never before trusted Jesus... You can be sitting here, but associating with Christians doesn't make you a Christian. If you have never trusted Jesus before, come to him now. He became what you are so that you could become what he is, the possessor of deathless life who lives in the presence of the true and living the just and holy God who is life. So come to him and find forgiveness the forgiveness that will free you from the sentence of death. Come to him and find freedom from fear because he will share his life with you. Come to the one who always lives now to hear and help his people, lives to save all who call on him. That's right, he lives, he hears. And so you can ask him to forgive you and receive you of one of his people. And if you're already a believer in Jesus, if you confess Jesus as Lord, well, hold on to him. Live dying to yourself to be faithful to him because you know he'll be faithful to you and he, the conqueror of the one who had the power of death, will raise you up at the last day. Live as one who has been freed from the fear of death, freed to be fearless in following Jesus, confessing him boldly in a hostile world. Live as one who knows Jesus is your living high priest, 
to whom you can draw near to find restoration when you fall and help when you struggle in trial. So don't stay distant from him, shamed by your consciousness of sin. Draw near and live. Live confidently and perseveringly as you give yourself to do his will. Whether it's in your marriage or your work or your pursuing of purity of thought and action, live confidently and share the good news of Jesus. Everyone is held in bondage to death. Everyone is bound by fear. Everyone needs to hear of the one who took on our flesh and blood to be the conqueror of the enemy of our race by his death and equip himself to be forever a merciful and faithful high priest, to be forever a merciful and faithful saviour of all who call on him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, when we read Hebrews so often we come across ideas and terms that are foreign to us and seem distant to our everyday lives. But we thank you that your word reveals your Son as he is, the one who took on flesh and blood to defeat our foe, the one who sets us free from the fear of death by his death, and the one who always lives to hear and help us, our great high priest. Help us to trust him as he deserves, and so live lives free of that fear. Help him to trust, help us to trust him as he deserves. And so in our own trials and testing, to draw near to him, to draw near to him for help, to draw near to him for forgiveness and restoration, to draw near to him, to live as those who are now your children through trusting him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.